In this podcast by the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office, we speak to Professor Stephen Friedman about his book, Prisoners of the Past, which examines how various social and economic patterns from our country's apartheid era are still present three decades into democracy. The podcast was made possible with financial support from the Hans Seidel Foundation. Hello, everyone. A number of books have been published in South Africa over the last few years that try to look forward and they present us with various scenarios, high roads and low roads and whatnot. And they tell us that if we do this and this, we'll end up in a certain place. And if we fail to do this and that, that we're going to regress or become a failed state or whatever. But they all tend to look into the future. My guest today, Professor Stephen Friedman, research professor at the University of Johannesburg, has taken a somewhat different approach. And he's been looking into the past to find out why we are where we are today. And he's written a book, which I'm going to show you, called Prisoners of the Past, South African Democracy and the Legacy of Minority Rule. The book came out during the course of last year. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. One of the starting points in your book is that a society can both change and remain the same. And you argue that this is what has happened in South Africa since 1994. And you're going to use the term path dependence to describe this phenomenon. So can we start by looking at this term? What is meant by path dependence? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Look, essentially, path dependence is uh, a reality in which uh, significant change happens uh, but the basic patterns which uh, existed before the change remain. Uh, and that's why things can change quite dramatically uh, and you still have path dependence. So, you know, anybody who says South Africa hasn't changed uh, uh, since uh, apartheid uh, really uh, has forgotten about apartheid who wasn't there at the time. There have been very real changes. Yeah. On the other hand, some very basic patterns have remained. Uh, and there are just, according to some scholars, there are three, three, three aspects of path dependence, uh, three things which don't change even as the country changes or the society changes. Uh, the first one is, is uh, if you like, attitudes. In other words, what people in authority value and what they don't value uh, remains unchanged. Uh, secondly, habits, uh, the way we do things, uh, what is considered an acceptable way of doing things and what is an unacceptable way. Uh, and thirdly, relationships, um, so that, for example, the way in which government and business relate to each other, the way in which citizens relate to government and the way in which government relates to citizens doesn't change. Um, and, and that, I argue, is the South African reality. We, we, we've had... Uh, very important changes over the last 30 or so years. Uh, but those attitudes, habits, and relationships uh, have remained much the same. Okay. Now, you, you, in the introduction to the book, you talk about the bargained compromises, which produced the Constitution, equal rights for all at a political level, and so on. But you say there was a lack of any similar agreement on how the economy and social institutions should change. And this has left some of those core patterns unchanged. Can you 
expand then on the economic and the social side of things? Well, it is interesting that in fact, you know, the society was the born if I mean, during the early 1990s, when we had the constitutional negotiations, we also had a set of social and economic forums, the National Economic Forum, there were housing, health, education forums, uh, and they were all supposed to have a look at their particular sector uh, and, and look at how we might change. Uh, and uh, none of that really came to fruition. The only one uh, at which there was an attempt to implement was the National Housing uh, uh, forums, uh, discussions, uh, and that didn't work out for a whole variety of reasons. Um, so what really happened was you had an entire, so you had all the decision makers in the society, all the political groupings in the society, aware that the society, that the economy had to change, that, uh, the way in which, uh, our institutions, our educational institutions, our, uh, our, 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 our professional associations operated had to change. Uh, and then because we had a, a constitution which was welcomed by the entire world in 1994, uh, all of that simply got shunted off to government. Mm. Um, uh, one of the things we didn't, we, we, there was a lot of interest in changing in the early 1990s, uh, was uh, our uh, racial attitudes and our racial tensions. Uh, and that's a very good example because, uh, you know, shortly after we became a democracy, uh, there's a sense in which 300 years of, 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 you know, racial domination and racial animosity was, was outsourced to the TRC, which was told to go and sort the whole thing out. <laughs> and, you know, the idea that, that a single commission of inquiry could do that, uh, was not realistic. Um, so there was, uh, uh an assumption that once we had this democratic constitution, nothing else had to change. Um, and so we didn't say, look, we have, let's take the economy, which is huge. We have an economy which is very concentrated. It's very difficult to get into. Uh, how do we open it up to people in townships and shack settlements so that a bright young person uh, born in those areas uh, who's got energy and talent can make it? And we didn't do any of those things. Uh, and, and so we stuck with the same sort of patterns uh, that, 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 that we were in, 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 in 1994. So, uh, you know, I often make the point and I make it in the book that, that, you know, you, you hear it said among some people today that there was too much compromise in 1994. My view is that there wasn't enough compromise in 1994 because we had a compromise on the, on, on the political system. Uh, we didn't have an, a, a compromise on the economy, uh, you know, or how the other institutions which keep our society going ought to be running. You also say that path dependence has um, given rise to this phenomenon of, of inclusion and exclusion. It has included some leading members of, of the governing party in particular in, in the market economy, but it's excluded others. And that this goes a long way to explaining why the change from the Zuma era to the Ramaphosa era now hasn't delivered the hoped-for solutions to our economic and social challenges. Now, this seems to be quite a different view from the increasingly common complaint that Ramaphosa and his faction, if you like, have simply just been weak and indecisive, and that's why nothing has changed since state capture and Zuma and so on. If Ramaphosa was somehow yeah. just firmer and braver 
he could solve our problems. Unfortunately not. No, unfortunately not. Because, yes, um, I mean, first of all, this insider-outsider divide is absolutely crucial to understanding it. It's, it's the most obvious form of path dependence in the society. And I argue in the book that, that the roots of this uh, were a common understanding between both sides in the negotiation process. In other words, if you want to put it that way, uh, the new black political elite and the old white economic elite, that what we were trying to do in this country was what I call create white privilege for everybody. Uh, and white privilege for everybody was the idea that the way in which white people had lived at the height of apartheid was, if you like, the, the gold standard was the model to which we ought to be ascribing. So how did you actually make sure that all South Africans uh, could live like uh, white people lived at the height of apartheid? Uh, and uh, if you think about it, that's not a very rational approach because uh, white people lived like that uh, in the way at, at the height of apartheid precisely because 90% of the population was excluded. Uh, and you can't extend uh, the fruits of exclusion uh, to everybody. Uh, but once that, once that became what we were trying to do, it was obvious that a great many people would be excluded. Uh, and that has been the reality. Um, now, the very simple dividing line I use, uh, uh, you know, just, just it's crude, but I think it makes the point between those who are included and those who are excluded is that if you earn uh, a wage or a salary or some kind of dividends or, or, or profit or whatever from the formal economy, then you're an insider. Uh, and if you don't, you're an outsider. And that means that the majority of the society are outsiders because most people don't get uh, a weekly or a monthly pay packet. Um, and uh, as, far, the, as far as the ruling party is concerned, the governing party is concerned, um, I think it's very important to understand that, to be specific, that the Ramaphosa group, the group which coalesced around Mr. Ramaphosa, are the insiders. Yeah. Uh, but it's equally important to understand that the other group are not the outsiders. The other group are people who find it convenient to appeal to the outsiders. I mean, that's why they call themselves the radical economic transformation faction. Mm. Um, it's really a fight between two groups of outsiders, or insiders about who's going to make the decisions. Uh, but the, 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 what, what, what the Zuma group has done uh, is to try to position themselves as, as, as the voice of the outsiders. Uh, uh, not only in the, in the positions they take, uh, but also, to be quite frank, by, by relying on patronage networks, uh, because if people are outsiders, uh, which, as I say, means that they're not getting a wage or a salary or dividends or whatever the case may be, uh, and you can offer them uh, even a fairly low-paid job in a municipality, uh, then they're likely to, uh, to, 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 to be receptive. Uh, and that's what the Zuma Group have been trying to do, uh, is to get their share of the pie. Uh, and then to make sure that the people who are outsiders get enough of that, enough of the crumbs, if you like, uh, to make them a better bet than the other group. So, no, I mean, the, the, the fact that a very, you know, great deal has not changed uh, under Ramaphosa's leadership uh, is not because he hasn't been decisive enough. Um, it's because uh, the basics have not changed. It's because the path dependence is still there. Uh, and, and uh, you know, until that changes, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter uh, 
not only doesn't it matter which ANC leader governs, it doesn't matter uh, where, which party governs, because uh, you know we're now entering a new era in this country in which the next general election will be the first in our history where uh, the outcome is in doubt. Uh, but if, the, if, if, if it goes against the ANC, uh, whoever takes over will either have to change the path dependence uh, or land up disappointing people. When it comes to efforts to change the, the patterns and to sort of escape, if you like, a path dependence, there's a fascinating section in the book where you talk about uh, campaigns and efforts where what appears to be an attempt to promote the interests of the excluded or the outsiders, in fact, ends up serving the interests of insiders. And you give uh, two examples of this, the, the Fees Must Fall campaign and then the campaign against e-tolls. And I think many people will find this um, a little bit difficult to get their heads around. So explain why were those two campaigns ultimately uh, uh, favoring insiders when they appeared to be favoring outsiders? Well, I mean, very simply put, uh, if you demand that higher education should be free, uh, you are essentially saying that very affluent people uh, should be able to go to university for free. Uh, the benefits to affluent people, I don't need to spell out. I mean, if you try to widen access to higher education, it seems to me that what you say, what should be saying, is that those who have the resources uh, should contribute more so that those who have nothing can go to university. Uh, but that's not what fees, fees must fall demands. It, it demands uh, that uh, everybody, uh, including uh, the, the sons and daughters of the richest people in the society, uh, should get a free higher education. Uh, I do mention in the book a very interesting evidence from Brazil uh, where, I, in, in fact, uh, it's been a demand of the Workers' Party that free higher education stop, because free higher education in Brazil basically excludes poor people, uh, because there are only a limited number of places. Uh, and so the people who've been to fancy private schools get into university and the people who don't can't. I mean, that's just one example uh, of, of a way in which it can uh, uh, entrench inequality. Uh, as far as ETOs are concerned, the most important point to remember about ETOs, and incidentally, this wasn't because the government wanted it, 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 it was a concession to, to forms of pressure, is that the forms of transport which poor people use are exempted from ETOs. Uh, and here we're talking about uh, buses and, and, and minibus taxis. Hmm. Uh, so you have a system, you have an arrangement, which uh, now is, is, is not going to be the arrangement, uh, in which those South Africans who can afford a vehicle, whether they're individuals or companies, uh, are paying for uh, roads which are being used free of charge, in effect, by, by people who can't afford cars. Uh, that is, uh, you know, that is what economists call a progressive tax in the sense yeah. that it takes from the, those who have enough and gives to those who don't have. Uh, and yet, you know, this has been routinely denounced, uh, uh, often entirely inaccurate. I mean, the, I'm not defending the actual scheme. You know, people complain about that 
concession was given to a foreign company, there's a legitimate argument that it should not have been given to a foreign company. Mm. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you can argue about uh, and legitimately complain about uh, in the implementation. But if you claim to be in favor of a fairer South Africa, uh, I, I still don't understand why an arrangement which makes vehicle owners pay for roads when people who can't afford vehicles don't have to pay for those roads, uh, why that isn't welcomed uh, as, as, as a step forward to a more compassionate society, uh, which if properly implemented, it would be. And since the recent announcement, it seems that um, in effect, the e-toll system, at least in Hauteng, is going to be Scrapped, if I understood correctly. Well, I, th I think it's an indication. I mean, I, I, and I, I do mention this. I think it's an indication of the of of the path dependency and of 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 so a point that I make in the book that all South African politics is insider politics, and it's only mm. the insiders who get to speak. That during this entire campaign against ETOs, the government has never once defended ETOs as a way of, 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 of providing transport to people, who, roads to people who can't afford it. It's never once defended it as a redistributive measure. Uh, it's, it's, it's simply relied on, you know, fashionable theories about user pay, etc. So, so you have the situation where, you know, a government who could possibly could have, if it wanted to, could have won the argument on ETOs by appealing to to people who can't afford cars and say, look, this is one of your, you know, one of your benefits which is being taken away from no. you support us. Uh, that, that it never even tried to do that because that's not what it thought it was doing. Mm -hmm. Moving on, chapter seven of the book, you, you build on some work by Harold Wolpe to reach the conclusion that the past survives not because negotiations gave away too much in the constitution, but because they did not supplement the political bargaining with similar negotiations on the economy and society's key institutions. As you said earlier, there wasn't too much compromise, there was too little. Are you then um, echoing a call for you know, the economic cadessa? Can we negotiate our way out of the path dependence? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, we can negotiate our way about our past dependence, but that all depends on what we think negotiation is. Um, you know, if an economic cadessa means that a group of people gather at a particular venue <laughs> and try to thrash things out mm. over a defined period of time, then no, no, we don't need that. Uh, because uh, that you know, that simply assumes, as, as government has tended to do over the last while, you know, the last few years, uh, uh, you know, the Mbeki administration did this and now the Ramaphosa administration is doing that, is that you could take very deeply rooted divides which go back, uh, you know, decades, uh, and you can sort it out in a conference venue over, over, over a set period of time. What I'm talking about is, 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 is something which will happen over the next few years, and it won't just happen in one place. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody will be there with a stopwatch saying, you, know, you have to reach agreement, but you, re you reach agreement when, when, when there's agreement, and then you, you move on. Um, so that's what I'm looking at. And, and, you know, we do, you know, so that when I'm asked, for example, I mean, I do quite a lot of uh, engagement with business audiences, um, you know, and when this particular topic comes up, I, I say to them, well, look, you know, if, if, you, if you get yourself into the mindset where you say, we recognize that things have to change, 
And this is what we're prepared to change. And this is what we expect in return. Where we, in other words, this is what we expect you, whether it's government, labor, whoever the case might be, to do in return. Then you're in negotiation mode. You know, then you're in the kind of negotiation mode I, 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 I'm, I'm advocating. Uh, and as I said, you know, this is, this is something which will happen in lots of venues uh, over, over a long period of time. And if it were to work out, people would agree on what they could agree on, when they could agree on it, and then, you know, carry on negotiating and, and bargaining about uh, the things on which they didn't agree. But I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that it could be negotiated. In fact, I'm not only convinced that it can be negotiated. Uh, it's the only way in which uh, I believe that, that the society will change um, because, you know, the central South African reality remains that despite all the divisions, uh, there's an interdependence. Um, uh, you know, um, no, but none of the key actors in the society can get what they want uh, without recognizing the existence and therefore the interests of other actors. And, that, and that's why negotiation is, is, I think, the only way out of path to bit. And you, you call these uh, negotiations hard bargaining. <clears throat> and you say that uh, looking at the three major actors, Business has tended to adapt to change over the last three decades, but it never initiates it. Uh, organized labor, in your opinion, is so weakened that it could not initiate this process, even if it wanted to. And therefore, you say a negotiation process will not begin unless government takes responsibility for prodding the other part parties to participate. I want to end with a double question. Firstly, is there any indication that government intends doing that kind of prodding anytime soon? And secondly, what's the role for wider civil society here, apart from organized labor? Does, does civil society have a, a role to play in these negotiations? Now, just a word on hard bargaining, and, and thanks for bringing it up. Uh, you know, I think the other thing, when one advocates negotiation, um, you usually get, uh, whichever side you advocate it to, uh, you usually get a torrent about, uh, you know, how they don't really like the other side or the other side. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there's this strange idea that, you know, negotiation is a process in which people who, who like each other and agree with each other get around a table. Yeah. If they liked each other and agreed with each other, you wouldn't need the negotiation. Negotiation is what you do when they don't like each other, they don't agree with each other. Um, so, so it is a tough process and it is a process in which power is exercised. And, uh, you know, for heaven's sake, we've had three decades of labor bargaining in this country. So, so we know that it's not a, a love fest. Um, so, you know, when I advocate negotiation, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking the parties to love each other. I'm asking them to recognize that they can't make progress unless they uh, compromise with the others. Um, does government recognize this? Government recognizes it in theory, but not in practice, I think. Um, uh, you know, I... I you know, at the risk of name dropping, which is not my intention. I mean, you know, the president has reacted very specifically to the argument saying, yes, we get it. We know that these things have to change. But if you look at the reality, uh, I, I think the, the, the appetite for doing what is needed to make them change is not there. Um, uh, because, uh, so, you know, to be quite specific, I think what government would need to do to make things change is to spell out very clearly what it thinks ought to change. 
and then invite everybody else to respond and make clear that you know no decisions will be taken uh, and, until the bargaining process uh, you know, achieves what it needs to, the, the agreement that it needs to achieve. So. <clears throat> yes, I do argue that government ought to do the prodding, but I don't think government would do the prodding unless citizens prod the government. Uh, and that brings me on to your question about civil society and, 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 and citizen groups more generally. Um, I believe that if citizens groups did prod the government on this, uh, that, that we might see the change that is required. Uh, and in fact, if they don't, uh, and I include in this more broadly, you know, the, the, the media, all the institutions in the society, which, which, which influence what the national yeah. agenda is, unless they start prodding the government to do this, uh, I think the government's going to continue to say that it's a good idea in theory, but not, not implemented in practice. So, so, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, is, you know, unless we can, you know, unless, if I'm right, uh, unless I can convince public opinion that I'm right or, or that part of public opinion which government listens to, uh, then the change is not going to happen. So, so in that sense, civil society is absolutely crucial. Thank you very much. So the book is, uh, once again, Prisoners of the Past. Uh, it's pretty widely available. It's a fascinating read. It's a very different perspective from what we are used to, I think, in, in um, you know, being told where we're going. Um, in a sense, we're not going anywhere unless we go look into the past and change the way we've been doing things up to now. So Stephen Friedman, Research Professor at the University of Johannesburg, thanks once again for giving us some of your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za.